When thousands of objects were gathered into museums at the end of the 19th century, it was argued that they could provide object lessons in human culture. The object lesson was thought of as a tangible example of an abstract principle, but was also supposed to teach people how to act by showing the details of a bad situation. What lessons do African objects have for us in the 21st century? What can we learn from them about Africa's long relationship with Europe? What can they teach us about being and becoming human? These are some of the questions we want to return to in our conversations with scholars, curators, artists and activists. African Object Lessons is an opportunity to go deeper, to hear different perspectives and to think in, about and beyond the museum. My name is Benjamina Efodaze and I'm a Collections Assistant in Anthropology at MAA Cambridge. My name is Chris Wingfield and I'm an Associate Professor in the Arts of Africa at the Sainsbury Research Unit in Norwich. In today's episode, we are speaking with industrial designer and artist Alafuro Sikaki Coleman. Welcome, Alafuro. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm fine, thank you. It's good to be here. Good. Thank you for accepting the invitation to talk with us. Um, so let's get into it. Um, do you want to share with us a little bit about, about you, um, your background, and sort of um how you 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 came into this space of uh, of you know the the museum and sort of how um you know thinking about this podcast uh how african objects are, are placed within within the museum space i was born in nigeria i grew up in nigeria i left at the age of 17 i moved to the uk for a levels as an international student and then from there went on to university and in the UK and moved on to do my master's in, in the States. I studied information design initially uh, for my undergraduate degree. And then I did industrial design because I was trying to understand more how we understand information, but going past 2D to 3D. And I also have a science background because I did sciences up until my A-level. So it's the curiosity and the questions and trying to see it dabbled a lot in photography as well. And by the end of my industrial design uh, program, I taken a huge interest in uh, fiber art. And that's basically like textile art. So I was always making and sculpting. And uh, I found myself traveling between these worlds of science, design, art and design, but also as a Nigerian, going between Nigeria and the UK, but feeling like I never really fit into one space, but I understood both. So it was beautiful for me because I could walk into a room in the UK and everyone know, okay, you're not really from here once I speak because of my accent. <laughs> but then going to Nigeria, I strongly believe I have a very strong Nigerian accent and I would open my mouth and be like, hi, and they're like, oh, you're from, <laughs> you're not from around here. <laughs> and that always surprised me or threw me off. So, but it was, I saw it as a, an advantage to be able to move between various worlds. And uh, I, I began to look at my culture, I think very differently. And I've always loved it, but I think for the first time in my life, I, I remember standing there and just thinking, I love being African, I love it. <laughs> and I'd never thought about it before because growing up in Nigeria, very happy childhood and just always 
surrounded by everyone who looked like me and who was like me. I never questioned, like race was such a non-discussion and even colonization never came up really. So it was a bit of a shock moving. And I haven't had bad experiences, but reading about things in the news or hearing people's experiences and just thinking like, why would anybody not like you because of how you look? That's a bit daft, you know? <laughs> so, so that's that's me in a nutshell. And uh, I found that museums were very much like libraries for me. They were like libraries filled with artifacts. And many times, you know, you'd go in and learn a lot, but there are times I would, I had a lot of questions and I didn't have the answers and everything seemed a bit too set in stone. And uh, as an industrial designer, I know that objects basically are, I, I define objects as, or artifacts as language in solid form. So they need to be able to converse and they change over time because they're basically instructions or words, but just condensed into matter. And I just thought, there has to be more. <laughs> there really has to be more. So hence my, my foray into museums. That's, that's really interesting. Um, We've, we've had a series of kind of episodes that have been linked to the Reentanglements project um, and and the exhibition that 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 is that has been on it at Cambridge and I, and I know that you worked on that as a designer um, in terms of the exhibition and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to be kind of involved in the project and and what your kind of take on it from 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 your perspective when you joined it was yes uh, joining was quite an experience. I went to the Horniman to check out the installation that uh, Dr. Johanna Zetterstorm Sharp and I had, uh, we had been working on the Nigerian 60 uh, installation. And so I went in for recce in between lockdowns. And on my way out, she came up to me and said, hey, um, someone I know, like you know, quite a good friend, he used to be a, her, I think, supervisor for her PhD project, um, Professor Bob Paul Basu would love to speak with you. Um, is it okay if I connect you? And I said, yeah, sure. Okay, no problem. <laughs> and uh, so we got in, he got in touch and he had seen the process images of Nigeria 60 um, shared by Dr. Johanna. And he thought that I would be a good fit with the Reentanglements project to flesh it out. I think he had an idea of how he he wanted it to look and feel. And he thought I should come have a look and just check out the space and look at the collection. And at that point, it was funny because I was in between like homeschooling. My youngest kid was teething. I wasn't sleeping. And I was prepared to say no, because just for my sanity and my husband's job, like full on, he's a creative director in video games. So like oh okay let's how many things can we juggle I spoke to Paul and he showed me a lot of the images and just the vastness of the collection and I could not say no I said sign me up <laughs> this is amazing so uh that's how I got involved and it, for me it was just I was like a kid in a candy store I had never seen so many images but especially like old images of so many people from one particular time I spent so much time just staring at their faces, just going, so beautiful, wow, oh my gosh, look at these, like, you know, all the scarification marks, the hairstyles, the smiles, everything. So it totally blew me away. But looking at the artifacts too and learning more about um, Northcote Thomas and how he 
visited Nigeria. And I think also I was very curious about how the community engaged with him as an outsider, trust or distrust, and uh, just trying to figure it out. But I came up with my own narrative anyhow, like during the during the project. And uh, yeah, it was it was great fun to work on. And can you can you tell us a little bit about your process um, when kind of you know thinking about a kind of exhibition design and 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 how you kind of obviously that you know Paul had a whole series of ideas about you know installation and artifacts and, and that kind of thing, but you know how do you kind of start to grapple with that as a designer and and and, and get you know bring your own creativity to to the process? It was quite different this time around, I think, because I had to wear many hats. <laughs> so um, I. I was looking at the project. We had to condense a lot into a small space because of the change of venue. And knowing that Paul had worked on it for ages, it I knew it would have been difficult for him to edit down because he knew how important each and every piece was to the story. And he had to, you know, really like edit down a lot. And uh so I felt like it was important to have these conversations with him and for us to show the works that work together in that space and they supported each other and they told the story, giving each piece like space to breathe and just the ability to sing and tell their own story without trying to put a lot in there. But um, I think when I had the chance to view the space, it was, it was a bit tricky because we had a lot and the space isn't very big. And uh, so the editing process began, but <laughs> I had a big issue with the cases. <laughs> I just didn't like them. And uh, I think it was my industrial design side that just felt these, you, functionally they do an amazing job because they preserve artifacts, they keep them at a certain temperature, they illuminate them but I can see them. I just needed them to disappear. So we began to talk about how the cases could just float and not be seen, but also how to create movement, taking into account the pandemic and people not being in a space uh, together or being uh, just hemmed in in any way, shape or form. And uh, yeah, so it, it, there was a lot, a lot of drawing, sketching, trying to figure it out, different configurations, wall spaces, temporary spaces, what can we move, et cetera. And uh, yeah, so the process began with first trying to figure out the space, mapping it, like walking around within the space. If I enter, do I turn left or right? What do I need to see? How do I feel when I'm confronted with images from this zone or that zone, but trying to uh, feel the user experience and put that into play. And from there, we worked on, um, I think, editing really, like who and what was going to be in that space. And from there, virtual placing of objects, how they would fit into the space, and then the pattern. So initially, the pattern design that I worked on, Destination Paradise, um, it wasn't even supposed to be. It was very, uh, it just came out organically because we had this massive case called the Colonial Anthropology case. And it has the cutout of Northcote Thomas and all the tools he used. And I thought, to, I said to Paul, like, we need to make this feel like a curiosity cabinet. 
and it has to feel personal. We don't want it to just be this gray background. It's like, I'll come up with a pattern. Okay. <laughs> and then six weeks later, after working on Uli patterns and putting them all together, because the Uli pattern in themselves were just, the patterns were out of this world, completely, utterly beautiful. And I felt like they needed to, to have a very strong uh, voice in the exhibition without them being blown up or exaggerated in any way. Cause I think that would have been the obvious thing to do. So I took the Uli patterns and I began to um, layer and create the pattern to tell the story. And uh, <laughs> so Paul felt that it would be a shame for most of the pattern to be covered with maps, et cetera. But I thought it, it was fine because we would just see bits of it and you could fill in the blanks in your imagination. And uh, from there, we decided to use the pattern for the background of the assemblage um, piece. And from there, the pattern uh, moved on to the posters as well. <laughs> so I always joke that uh, it spilled out from that cabinet, <laughs> like of the exhibition space. But yeah, so we, we did all that. And then, um, but what I loved about working on the exhibition was the conversations between Paul and myself. And we talked a lot about how, how the space should make people feel and what kind of message we were trying to convey, but also the confrontation and dialogue and giving, you know, allowing enough breathing space between the works on display and the audience so they could meet in the middle and create their own story or the, like build their own understanding instead of dictating this is what it is and it's only this, or this is what I think it is and it can't change. But having this meeting point in that space in between was very important. And uh, we just continued from there and we kept going. So yeah, and it was just also brilliant to work with contemporary artists and put in their art and their take on, on the work as well. So yeah, the collection was vast, but having that modern, um, introduction really really made a difference describe the sort of first encounter with their collection as a feeling of amazement and sort of wonder um and you seem to have engaged with the photographs uh more so than with the objects and and correct me if i'm wrong um but i wonder um thinking about sort of the different inspirations that help you to to create the the design of the space and also you know the 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 prominent design of the of the background to the colonial anthropology uh case um if there are any sort of um uh personal uh connections or any personal biographies that you bring to this um this work yes uh so when i think about objects or artifacts as an industrial designer, my first um, point is who will use this? How do they use it? What does it mean to them? Does it get repaired? Does it get um, thrown away? Is it designed for disassembly? I have all these questions in my mind, but I think what the focal point is the user and because it's like subject, object, environment. The, the person is the key. So without the person, the object means nothing. 
and the space, you know, I always ask them, what is the meaning of location? What does your geography actually mean? But then if you move objects or people in and out of different locations, do you actually change like what they are and what they mean? So all these things float around always <laughs> in my consciousness. And uh, so the people were very key for me because it gave me a greater understanding of the artifacts and how they would have used them, perceived them, what they meant to them. And uh, so they are more important in my industrial design brain because they are the, without them, objects have no function. And so that's how I, I scale it. <laughs> and uh, so it was very important for me to understand them before I could, I think maybe do justice to the artifacts that they once used and uh, that were collected. And so I, that's how I, I figured it out um, for creating this space. And I know that um, they, when I look at environments and how people travel and move, you know, culture is always growing and changing. And you can, so even within Evil Land, which is really funny, I have some, I have some friends. So I come, I'm a jaw um, ancestrally. And uh, I have a really good friend whose name is Ngozi, and she's Igbo. And she thinks her name is of Igbo origin, <laughs> but my dad told her, actually, your name is Ijoj. What, how do you, what do you mean? And she said, he asked, what does Ngo mean in your language? Nothing. What does Z mean? Nothing. Because exactly. But together, Ngozi, you brought it together, and you say the, the name means blessing, right? Yes. Okay, in in jaw, Ngo and Z have two different meanings. Together, it means like a happy place, home, blessing. Ngo Ba are different names, Ngo Wari. So you can see the chain of the meaning. So it's like, this name, probably someone from your area traveled over and heard the name, gave the name to their daughter, <laughs> etc. And now the name is so common in Igbo land that you think it's actually from there. So it's the same thing with objects and ideas as well. Like you can take something wholeheartedly and it becomes yours. And absolutely it is yours because you love it, period. <laughs> so for me, Ngozi is an Ijo name, but it's also an Igbo name. And I think it, it helps me to understand um, people as well. So where I come from, I come from, my father comes from an island in Bayelsa and you have to travel there um, by speedboat for one hour from the mainland in Agua. But it's a small, beautiful, beautiful island. And you can only get there by boat. There's no bridge connected. The bridge was supposed to have been built decades ago, never happened. But there's always movement and people come and go. Ideas, people move in, they move out, go to university, go move for work. But there's always a movement. And I think that's very important that even though things and people move back and forth, there's still this understanding of where people or objects come from, but also when they are out of location, do they really change? Like, does that meaning change? If I take something that's very, very important to me and I give it to you, how you handle it, how you care for it, how you love it, it's completely different from how I would have ever treated it. So is the object really the same? You know, I think there are a lot of philosophical questions around objects and ownership. And you can also substitute 
meaning or even objects. I mean, you can have surrogate objects to replace lost ones. So all these um all these things come up in my in my work and in my understanding of how we look at objects and how we feel about what we own or what we what we believe is part of our culture. Thanks. That's that's really interesting and, and the kind of reflections on on place and, and movement of objects. Um, when you were talking earlier about the cases, you said that you kind of wanted them to disappear. Um, and you know, have it, for me, having worked in that in that museum as a curator, I kind of always felt like the place of the museum as as something that had its origins in the colonial period, and the cases as a kind of technology of containment, and you know, was something that was always kind of you know imposing itself on on what you wanted to do in the space. Um, and I guess you know, I, when I go into that gallery, I kind of feel like actually you've created a sense in which it's not just stuck in a in a in a kind of Cambridge museum, um, and there's a sense of Africa which kind of kind of finds its way into the space and I wondered how deliberate that was in, 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 in thinking about the design and you know as you say kind of bringing the cases in but also creating these designs that run between the different aspects of the of, 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 the, of the exhibition. Yeah sure um, the case was very uh, I'm actually quite grateful to my dislike for the cases because <laughs> they helped me a lot in overcoming um, I felt the barrier that they created between our viewing of objects and um, what the objects actually were. So during one of our many, many conversations, Paul and I were talking, I asked him about the, the title of the exhibition, Reentanglement, and I was particularly drawn, so was he to the string game. And there were many pictures of you know, the cat's cradle and string, I played them as a child with my friends and my sister. And uh, once I said to him, you know, this feels like this collection feels like a time capsule that's been buried in this, like imagine the museum and all the institutions, like this big, big bottle, this big trunk that they just put in all these things, bury them in the ground. It's like a hundred years later, you're going to find these things and wonder where did they come from? So I said, this space is really one giant time capsule, like linking us to the past and also all the players right now, we're creating parts of the narrative for the future. So it is an everlasting time capsule, but imagine like when this giant, giant string game like suspended. <laughs> so that's what ended up kind of like running around um, placing that string game all over the walls because we are in this giant string game, you know, we're suspended within it and really trying to understand what happened before, what are we doing now? What are the things that we, we seek to know or find out from these objects, but what kind of stories are we presenting to the future, to our future um, generations, audiences, but are we really going to leave things stuck in the past? And now that we have the space for dialogue, we're not afraid of each other, our cultures can communicate click of a finger. So if there are things that one culture doesn't know about the other, you can always find out, travel, ask. We can't leave impressions frozen in time and then keep carrying them forward. So I feel like this time is such a, an opportune moment to be alive because you get to learn so much and you can go to the places where these things originated from and find out so much more. So for me, it was just amazing, <laughs> like just being part of this 
you know, time travel team <laughs> and uh, like working on the, the project. And I really would love to see collections, I think, viewed like that. You know, it's a space for dialogue and really for synergy because listening to, um, to Chioma or like her um, experiences with the audio recordings, George, the politics at play, like behind the scenes, but also his, um, his uh, enthusiasm and his background in photography, but seeing how all these things just work together and just make more stories within this story, I think it was quite fascinating. I was just reflecting on um, the point about the desire of wanting the cases to disappear. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking about the open uh, display, the, the assemblage, um, the, the first one you see as soon as you enter the space, um, where um, of course your design has almost been used as a recreation of, uh, of a photograph uh, from Thomas. Um, so one, uh, I want to ask you how, how you feel about reproducing uh, such a photograph in a, in a way uh, that uses uh, the design you created as the backdrop. And, and two, I wanted to say that it was actually a moment of contention having that open display just open without any case. Um, and in fact, um, so right now we have a barrier around around it. Um, is is gray, so it, it sort of um, it sort of mimics the color of the of the strings. Um, but how do you also feel about having this um, display open without any? cases and sort of uh almost reachable to the to the public and the people that come into the museum i'm fine with it because it's a representation of the assemblage that uh northcote thomas and his assistants put together and i think it it works but also there see art and museum spaces have to exist in a in a bubble of trust. So when I create art to show, I trust that I'm sharing a part of my soul. It's very personal to make work. Even if you're interpreting a brief, if you're an artist or a designer, you're really putting yourself out there. And yes, you know, you're used to criticism, et cetera, but it's about trust. Trusting that you are looking at aspects of my consciousness that I've chosen to share, but also hoping that you can understand what I'm sharing with you, but also the openness, it's trusting the museum goers that they respect the space and there's no guard looming over saying, don't stand too close, you're breathing on that, <laughs> hands off. But it's really to, to, it's a way to make museums more accessible and less of a cold, cold, sterile place. I think it's it's important and uh, very, very important. You know, children go there, elderly people go there, all ages and demographics. So it's very important that folks can see work, but also, you know, you can almost smell the the wood as well. It's all our senses coming to play. Everything is so important. And if, if it's all behind glass, then, you feel like there's always something in in between and that yes the works have to be protected especially if they're fragile but 
if there's no reason for it except that you just don't trust the audience then a museum will never really feel like a welcome place it will just always be like all right you know saw the cases and the things in it <laughs> see you so we, we want it to be somewhere that's engaging and i love the um, velvet rope tying with the strings as well because it just felt like a continuation you know like the strings had leaped out from the walls and continued out and touched back in. And uh, yeah, it was very cool to see the, the yam grater as well. <laughs> that was a big hit. <laughs> it's great because questions are important and uh, audiences love to engage. And I think it's very important. It, it gives the, the artifacts um, a voice in a way. If people really, really want to know, and you're not just looking, but you're actually engaging all the questions. And when questions are asked and you, you think about why, it also helps one to understand the collections better. So it's this ever-feeding, growing um, appreciation of, of the collection in hand. So I, I think it's, it's very precious actually. And the more we make museum spaces of, dialogue and of, I think fun you need like people to just want to go and like we have weekends where okay we're not going to do anything and my kids mommy we need to go to an art gallery or museum come on <laughs> and because we always take them to see art so or we take them to museums but like this crave needs to be there and whether it represents your culture or not but just knowing that you're seeing something that excites you or intrigues you and makes you ask questions or you walk away thinking, but why or how, how is that possible? <laughs> then I think you're in a good space then because you're actually, you're um, reanimating the artifact, reanimating the collection and different generations and different people see things very, very differently. So it means that the objects actually live forever because they're, in various consciousnesses. And uh, I think it's, it's pretty cool. Obviously that's the, the curatorial dream or the ideal. And, 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 um, but I think, yeah, it's really interesting to have that kind of design perspective on how to realize that. And I think the ambition that we feel sometimes then and actually how to do it is, is, is where we fall down. But um, it's been great to talk to you about the, the Re-Entanglements exhibition and your, and your role in that. But I, I also wanted to kind of talk a little bit about your other work. Um, you mentioned Nigeria 60, um, but I also know you've, you've done this work, Boyungi, and, um, and some of that is in the Horniman, but I know you're also kind of planning to take that project forward. And I was thinking about, you, you know, fiber and string games and, the, you know, those kind of material connections. But I kind of really like to hear more from you about, you know, what's happening with, with, that, with that other side of, of, of your work. Yes, my... My projects take up a lot of my <laughs> my life. And um, yeah, it was amazing working at the Horniman on Nigeria 60 because that was a celebration of Nigeria's 60th year of independence. It was supposed to happen, but the you know, pandemic came in and scuppered all our plans. So it got postponed and finally opened this year um, instead of last year, 2020. So it opened in 2021. And it was such a joy to work on it. And uh, it was a fusion of three collections. Um, so I have a collection of artifacts from Nigeria's independence period. And I'd shown that previously in Munich and I traveled a bit 
um, in Germany. And so that was back in the UK. And the Horniman has a collection from the 60s. And there was also a collection that was uh, given to the Horniman from a family that lived, a British family who lived in Nigeria in the 50s. And they moved back to the UK after independence. And it really made me question the idea of home, but also what home is. So for us Nigerians, independence was amazing. We got our country back. And for that family leaving, it was really bittersweet because they were losing their home and all they had ever known, especially the children. And uh, I think it's very important to be sympathetic to the individual. It doesn't matter if you have a different point of view or different affiliation or you know, inclination, but it's very important to put yourself in someone else's shoes and try to feel what they felt. So they left and for that family, I think the, the kids are now in their 70s, et cetera, but they've never really felt like they belong here in the UK. And for them, Nigeria is still home. So for me, it was very important to look at the collection from all aspects and how, how home is interpreted. And so we, we took on, a, we divided into various bits. Like these are objects that you, are everyday objects. These are things that are used for making. So they represent who you are and where you come from. And also things that, you know, how you present yourself. And uh, we've been talking, Johanna and I have been talking a lot about the idea of representation in museum spaces and how, I know it's, it's a big area of discussion in general about representation and making sure everyone is seen. But for me, it's also, it's double. I think there's representation, but also from the one who is to be represented, how do you present yourself to represent yourself if you have been misunderstood <laughs> in the past. It's a little bit of a twist, it's a bit stringy, but it still ties in with that. So I felt Nigeria, joyous place. Everybody is full of hope, very happy, very confident, boisterous people. We need something that actually shows that, you know, so if you walk into this space, you know, like, I know where this is. <laughs> so it was about transporting um, the audience, giving them a feel of what it's like, you know, to go to Nigeria, to listen to Nigerian music and just have that joy of life flowing through you. And um, so we, we worked on it and I designed the background pattern and we co-curated the objects to go into the, into the case. And I made a mural as well at the far end. And it was, it was so much fun to work on, just showing like, this is how we feel the 60s felt like. <laughs> and uh, realizing that. And then the other project, um, Woyingi, that touches on the female goddess of creation or just female god of creation and uh, from the Ijo people. But she was dethroned when colonial Christianity came to Nigeria. And for me, was I was quite surprised to learn about her because I was raised as Christian, but spending a lot of time on the island, I would hear prayers in church. Our father, who art in heaven, but our father, 
was called Woyingi, who is our mother. So we pray to God our father, but we call him mother. <laughs> so I always question this, you know, that like dual nature. Like why why is God male and female? But you know, so is I would ask, like, so do we think that God is heterosexual? They're like, no, he's God, but she's the mother too. So it, it really, really um baffled me. And I I asked a lot of questions and I learned a lot about the creation story, like the formation of the black egg. And so, so much philosophy in it. So it, it absorbs all light. And I was like, this is physics. <laughs> and from it, you know, life comes out. But it's very, um, it touches on chimerism as well and power of females and the egg and the form and you know, basically who came first, you know, that age old question. And um, yeah, so I'm now expanding that into the seven ages of Woyingi and looking at the different ages of women and womanhood, starting from you know, child infancy to the you know, grand golden age. And uh, so I'm working with a jeweler, ceramist, art historian. I'm trying to get a psychiatrist to work with me as well, looking at how the female brain changes, especially with the onset of hormones, decline in hormones, et cetera. So it's it's a lot of work, but <laughs> it's it's great fun. Fantastic. Well, I think we're gonna have to get you back on to talk more about that when that's when that project has progressed a bit more. Oh, with pleasure. I'd love to. Thank you. Thank you so much for it's been a great, great talking to you and thanks for giving up your time. Thank you very much for having me. This podcast was introduced and presented by Dr. Chris Wingfield and Benjamina Ekwadazi. Our guest, Alafuro Sikoki Coleman, is an industrial designer and artist. She is the founder of Studio Sikoki, a design, art, and research facility where she explores the dynamics between the object, user, and the environment. You can learn more about her work and practice by visiting studiosikoki.com.